0: Welcome to the ACFCS Financial Crime Cast, a briefing featuring the latest news, analysis, and guidance from across the financial crime spectrum. I'm Brian spoda VP of Product Development with ACFCS, and on this episode, we're exploring one of the hottest trends in the illicit use of cryptocurrency, the rise of privacy wallets. We're taking a deep dive into why this tool has become a favored typology of illicit actors and what companies and organizations in the crypto space can do about it. Our guide on this quest to make the understanding of privacy wallets a little more public is David Carlyle, head of policy and regulatory affairs with Elliptic. He's gonna give us insights on the how and the why behind privacy wallets and shed some light on the regulatory response from FinCEN and other agencies. He'll also provide perspectives on emerging issues in illicit use of crypto more broadly following up from our recent webinar the top 5 emerging trends in financial crime and crypto david thanks so much for being here
1: yeah thanks for having me brian great to be here and uh, having the chat
0: excellent well let's let's start out by just kind of understanding uh why we're talking about the topic of privacy wallets and in the crypto space so can you just give us a brief overview of why understanding typologies criminal typologies related to cryptocurrency uh, is so important
1: yeah absolutely so i mean i think in general typology studies are all about bringing money laundering and terrorist financing to life so that your compliance team is equipped for proactive detection of illicit activity rather than merely being reactive and on the back foot you know, I don't think it's just enough to know the basics of money laundering or terrorist financing and placement layering integration or just having some automated tools uh, to alert you to things you know especially when you're dealing with a, a new and complicated technology like crypto assets you know context is really everything and I think the more you understand about all the ways in which criminals behave and typologies unfold and where and how red flags manifest the better prepared you'll be to identify that activity before it becomes a really dire problem for your business. And I think that's the case whether you're a cryptocurrency business who's dealing with the technology day in, day out, or whether you're a bank or financial institution who uh, may have more indirect forms of interaction with crypto, whether it's uh, you know, dealing with third parties who may introduce uh, the proceeds of, of crypto uh, currencies uh, you know, into your business. So. I think, you know, understanding the way the technology is unfolding, the way those typologies are taking shape is really, um, you know, it helps you to future-proof your compliance operations and understanding the evolution of those typologies allows your compliance team to be proactive so that you can be thinking ahead to how criminals may attempt to abuse your business, um, even if they don't do it in a a certain way now. Um, Knowing those typologies lets you to really think a step ahead of the criminals. And at Elliptic, we provide technology solutions for identifying illicit activity. Um, We also think it's critical to provide our our customers with data-driven insights about typologies that can help them do their jobs as effectively as possible. And as a blockchain analytics firm, we sit on a lot of really fascinating data That sheds light on how criminals behave using crypto. So, we make it a point to share those insights to help the broader community, uh, compliance community, in combating financial crime.
0: Yeah, I think you made a you made a number of great points there, and I think you know to, to your point of uh, looking ahead and getting ahead of the financial criminals. That's just absolutely one of the core challenges that I think everybody in this this field of, of financial crime detection and prevention is facing. We always feel like we're one step behind. So I think it's a great point to you know say even if you're not seeing it today, let's try to actually look a little bit into the future rather than be reactive. Um, and you know I think the other thing you bring up that's really really interesting is that, um, you know, you need to know how criminals are using uh, these tech tools, um, particularly crypto, which is the subject of the conversation here, because you, you also need to know that uh, what's not illicit, right? Uh, so by being more well-versed in in identifying illicit activity, you can also distinguish it from completely uh, Licit or legal activity. It's just, you know, maybe worth noting that uh, for those that are maybe a little bit less familiar with space, the vast majority of of crypto transactions, crypto assets, funds moving through crypto is is uh, is entirely legitimate activity. So, um, so by you know getting well versed in this space, you have a better understanding of both what is potentially risky or suspicious, as well as what is entirely legitimate and just you know another avenue for investment or moving funds or that type of thing. Um, so, some great points there. Thank you. Thank you for uh, for starting us off with that so uh, on the note of you know you mentioned that that elliptic has some pretty fantastic data set and that comes in part from the transparency of uh you know the blockchain on which some of these these cryptocurrencies move um or which is the underlying technology for some of these cryptocurrencies and that's both an advantage when we're looking from the compliance side and a potential uh, liability when we 're looking from the criminal side um, and one one avenue to maybe get around that has been uh this move towards privacy wallets so you can talk can you talk a little bit about you know what privacy wallets are and why they 've been attractive to uh, illicit actors in this space
1: yeah absolutely no, thanks and you know I think you mentioned there that a very small proportion of cryptocurrency activity is actually illicit. I mean, our, our own research suggests that um, of Bitcoin transactions, uh, only about 1% is linked to criminal actors. Um, so the vast majority of of activity is, is totally legitimate. Um, and, and I think that is in large part owing to the underlying transparency of blockchains or ledgers that transactions are conducted on that makes it possible to um, essentially monitor in real-time uh, flows of funds end-to-end in ways that wouldn't be possible um, in in other types of uh, – uh, in other points of the financial sector. Um, but certainly, you know, criminals do consistently uh, look for ways to try to um, evade some of that inherent uh, traceability in crypto, and privacy wallets are one of the ways they're doing it, maybe, maybe the most significant way they're doing it at the moment. Now, privacy wallets are a type of crypto asset wallet. Uh, a Popular one is known as Wasabi wallet. and These are essentially software wallet services that allow you to send, receive, and store Bitcoin, but they have uh, integrated mechanisms for obscuring information about the user's source of funds when they send a Bitcoin transaction. So your listeners, um, some of them you know, may be familiar with, with the concept of Bitcoin mixers before. Uh, Bitcoin mixers are services that take Bitcoin from lots of different users, jumble them together before redistrib- redistributing them in a way that masks their ultimate origin. Now, mixers have sort of historically, you know, for the past 10 years or so in, in Bitcoin terms, um, been typically centralized services. So run by a single operator who carries out mixing activity. And mixers were very popular for a long time with criminals. Uh, especially operators of dark web marketplaces who needed to launder their Bitcoin. Um, but centralization has, has really been one of the major flaws of mixing services. Uh, traditional quote unquote mixers can it, steal users' funds in some instances, can be shut down by law enforcement. And um, we saw that happen last year with Helix Mixer, which was one of the big illicit mixing services until its founder was arrested by US law enforcement last year. So, um, in essence, centralized mixing services. Um, aren't really reliable for criminals who, who need a you know a relatively safe way to to move their uh, illicit proceeds without disruption, and privacy wallets like Wasabi Wallet um, offer an advantage in that they're they're purely software applications rather than centralized services, and they use a technique called CoinJoin that enables a more decentralized form of mixing. And because they're more decentralized without a single form of failure or single point of failure rather, um, privacy wallets create less vulnerability to disruption. So I think criminals see them as advantageous, which we think explains the growth in their use, which has really been explosive over the past couple of years. Um, we saw a really massive increase in privacy wallet use for illicit purposes from 2019 to 2020. And in 2020, privacy wallets eclipsed centralized mixers as a preferred method for laundering Bitcoin for the first time. So it was actually a 200% year-on-year increase in illicit use of privacy wallets from 2019 to 2019 uh, that our research showed, um, which amounts to about $160 million worth of illicit activity in Bitcoin laundered in 2020 alone via privacy wallets. And uh, the most public and visible case of that um, was last year's Twitter hack, where cyber criminals hijacked the Twitter accounts of a number of famous uh, people and politicians to perpetrate a Bitcoin fraud and laundered the Bitcoin in part through privacy wallets. And um, those individuals were, were ultimately apprehended because um, even though privacy wallets, break the full chain of traceability that we tend to have in in Bitcoin transactions. Um, At Elliptic, we can still detect when a privacy wallet's being used. So cryptocurrency businesses or financial institutions can use solutions like Elliptics to identify transactions that involve privacy wallets, uh, which may be a red flag that, that needs further investigation. So um, certainly, privacy walls do prevent present a number of um, challenges in terms of detection, um, but but there are some ways to to mitigate that risk. Um, but but they certainly have become a a, um, a favored mechanism for criminals now, and, and a growing one in terms of their prevalence in the ecosystem.
0: Yeah, and it's I mean it speaks to your earlier point about the the rapidity of change in in. The technology um, and the constant advancement of uh, the crypto space and the, the the virtual asset space in general. Um, there's just always always something new, which is in many ways great um, for financial innovation, but also provides innovative tools potentially for bad actors. Um, on that note, you know, Elliptic did put out, I think back in December, um, a very useful guide designed for. You know the compliance community in particular not necessarily people who are who are deeply into the technical space but um really tailored for the the compliance side um called financial crime typologies of crypto assets and it looked at typologies in the money laundering and terrorist financing um uh, spaces and uh since then you know as, as since we're on this theme of kind of everything evolving, developing very quickly. Um, you know, even just looking at the past couple of months, have there been any any new developments or anything you would highlight, especially kind of looking ahead to uh, 2021?
1: Yeah, so I think there are a couple of things. Um, probably the, the most significant major issue we've seen that's emerged just in the, the past couple of months is uh, relates to domestic terrorism in the u s and the potential use of crypto to further political extremism and um, this isn't a totally new problem uh, per se. I, I think there's there's for the past several years been knowledge that um, for example, neo nazi groups have used crypto to fund their uh, propaganda campaigns, and that other um, extremists uh, have have engaged in similar activity using crypto for crowdfunding to to raise um, funds in support of their activity. Um, perhaps they see crypto as a convenient way to do that outside the mainstream financial sector, especially where those groups have maybe been um, debanked. Um, we cover this in our typology report. It's there for those who, who may be interested to read more about it. Um, we give some examples in the report, which is accessible on our website. But um, I think I think what's new, I suppose, about this is that the attack on the capital in January um, this year shed light on this activity with a renewed urgency. And there's even been some speculation whether some of the participants in that in that uh, incident may have been funded funding their activities with Bitcoin. Now, um, again, not not entirely new problem, but um, one where there's there's increasing focus on. Uh, to what extent this is happening, and, and ways to potentially um, make it more difficult for um, groups with extremist views to take advantage of this new technologies in ways that could that could ultimately, um, you know, fund violent activity. And so, um, at Elliptic, we're, we're certainly very focused on equipping our customers with the tools they need to be able to detect transactions with extremist political groups, uh, whether on the extreme right or the extreme left, uh, so that they can determine if that's a activity they should be facilitating. Um, I think in addition to the, the sort of political extremism issue, um, one area where there's been a lot of focus is around decentralized finance. So and this is a notion, you know, a, another concept in crypto, I think that highlights the fast-moving pace of the evolution of the technology, but the notion that you can provide um, certain types of services that would ne- typically need a centralized intermediary um, in a totally decentralized manner. So, um, even the fact, the, the notion that you can take the concept of a cryptocurrency exchange, which has, I think, until now mostly been run by centralized businesses that function a little bit like a, a bank or, or more traditional financial institution and have them run purely in an automated fashion so that there's no central operator behind that, um, behind a platform and trades are just happening, happening automatically and governed by what are known as smart contracts. Um, in 2020 i think we saw really the, the first cases of significant money laundering through decentralized exchanges starting to happen and um generally speaking these exchanges have been unregulated because there's really nobody behind them they don't take custody of funds and um, they don't really function in the manner typically speaking of a more centralized business that you can regulate and there's a lot of question among regulators going uh, on at the moment about whether that should change um, and so we did see, I think, in the second half of last year, some some significant cases start to emerge, and I think that's going to be one of the areas where going into 2021, um, you know, for what we're already hearing from regulators, they're, they're going to be focusing a lot of attention on this question as, um, you know, as trading on these decentralized platforms increases in scale, as the volumes of even legitimate trading goes up. Um, will they potentially become more convenient mechanisms for for money laundering outside the regulated sphere? So, I think um, both those issues of um, political extremism and um, decentralized finance are going to get a lot of attention in in twenty twenty
0: one. Yeah, and both both very very fascinating topics with a uh, uh, many different kind of ramifications to them. You know, particularly this. This uh, this this issue of kind of you know growing acceptance um, when we talk about the you know the decentralized finance space because one of the the key challenges I think for bad actors or in in the crypto uh, world is is the issue of liquidity and the issue of being able to you know you, you can you can have a very innovative mechanism to move funds uh, or you know something like privacy coins um, conceal your transactions but then. Having some kind of mechanism to get it back out into fiat currency, um, or having the ability to move it easily between different uh, types of currency, is is always a challenge. So, um, I think there's there's challenges on the regulatory side, and there's also challenges on the, the bad actor side of of utilizing some of these uh, some of these evolving platforms. Um, but on the on the theme of the the regulatory side. FinCEN has been looking at this, and I think late last year, but you would know much better than me, so correct me if I'm wrong, uh, FinCEN put out a, a, a proposed rule change, um, and it was focused on on unhosted wallets, um, and privacy wallets are probably a broader sector of this, this unhosted wallet kind of world. Um, so can you speak a little bit about what this proposed rule change is, um, and then, you know, put- potentially on its its impact, um, particularly when it comes to crypto compliance?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, on December 23rd, FinCEN published a notice of proposed rulemaking that would require banks and money service businesses, U.S. to record and report information about crypto transactions involving uh, unhosted wallets or um, crypto transactions with financial institutions and high-risk jurisdictions like Iran, North Korea, and Myanmar. Now, unhosted wallets for listener's background are uh, individual wallets or, or sometimes called um, self-hosted wallets. So those wallets that aren't associated with any financial institution, which is you know really that's the real innovation of crypto. Um, this notion that you can be your own bank and don't need a financial institution to hold funds or process transactions on your behalf. So unhosted wallets are, are, are those where you can uh, undertake the transactions purely on your own without without um, having a financial institution hold funds or store the, the relevant keys or do any of that other work for you. Um, And and privacy wallets are, are, yeah, I think sort of one subset of of unhosted wallets. Now, um, regulation uh, until this proposed rule in the US really hadn't addressed how regulated businesses should treat uh, any transactions or dealings they have involving unhosted wallets. So for example, if I go to a regulated crypto exchange and send funds to an, an unhosted wallet, that isn't held by a regulated business but is instead held solely by an individual, um, there's been no guidance today on how to deal with that circumstance if you're a regulated business, uh, no specific requirements around what you need to do when that happens. Now, uh, the closest analogy in banking probably is, is someone withdrawing cash from a bank account or an ATM. Um, except that in the crypto world, um, the process of withdrawing funds from a regulated business to an individual wallet is fully electronic and can involve third-party, third-party cross-border funds transfers, unlike cash, which is probably more, in most cases, more geographically limited. So uh, this NPRM was FinCEN's first attempt to address that issue and to um, articulate what the U.S. Treasury sees as the associated risks of. But are you know essentially synonymous cross-border transactions where there's no financial institution on one end of the transaction, and specifically the rules would require um, firstly that banks and MSBs gather identifying information on the counterparties behind the unhosted wall- wallets that their customers transact with for any transactions over three thousand dollars. So, for example, if I go to a U.S. crypto business and I say, uh, "Please send funds." From my wallet to um, wallet XYZ one two three et cetera et cetera um, for you know, three thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin, um, you know that crypto business would need to ask me, uh, "Who are you sending those funds to? What's their address?" And I'd have to tell them it's going to Brian Kindle um, at one two three Main Street, um, as you do for sort of standard wired transfers. The, the difference being that you know the Brian Kindle in that case wouldn't be holding funds at any financial institution, so it's purely an individual. And In this case, the crypto business would be collecting that information on, so, on someone who's not their own customer or, or a customer of any other financial institution. Um, the second requirement, in addition to that counterparty identification requirement, um, requires that banks and MSBs file uh, what FinCEN calling a value transaction report or a VTR, um, essentially a form like a currency transaction report, which I think a lot of listeners would be familiar with, um, but that would need to be filed for any crypto transactions um, in whole or in aggregate um, involving unhosted wallets that are over $10,000 uh, in value. So essentially kind of replicating the, the CTR filing requirement but for um, the crypto world would be the second component of it now um, you, you asked a little bit about what would this all mean from a, a com, you know a compliance operations perspective and I think you know undoubtedly as written um, the the proposed rules, would really require that businesses develop new processes, reallocate resources, and obtain certain new technological and technology capabilities to be able to comply, and you know, potentially with some significant costs and operational implications. Um, crypto businesses would need to adjust their processes to ensure they can identify any time a transaction over a certain value may involve an unhosted wallet. Um, it's a technical challenge, which is you know, certainly potentially achievable but it does require certain specific technology solutions like blockchain monitoring and deploying them in in new and different ways Um, they'd also need to be able to conduct due diligence on their counterparties including verifying whether their business counterparties are regulated and would in some ways mimic components of correspondent banking due diligence Um, and they would need to start filing vtrs and ctrs for the first time uh, you know for potentially significant volumes of crypto transactions and that would you know, unquestionably, come with new costs in terms of systems implementation, resourcing, automation, and so on. So, um, all of that will impact businesses. But then, of course, the, you know, the end user—it'll um, it, impact the current customer experience and workflow uh, at crypto businesses and users of cryptocurrencies would need to provide more information about their transactions than ever before. So, I think you know, if not implemented in a in a thoughtful and sound manner that takes into account a lot of the technical challenges, which I think is you know an issue we keep coming back to today. Um, it could really have a detrimental impact on the speed and efficiency of the end user experience in crypto, which I think is one of the, the important innovations in the technology that's, you know, even regulators look to to further objectives like. Uh, greater inefficiency a in, uh, greater efficiency in payments and uh, financial inclusion so it 's not technically uh, it, you know it 's not to say that it 's technically impossible to do um, every single thing that this proposed rule would require, but it would certainly have a significant practical impact uh, you know some some in some cases significant costs um, you know with some important trade offs from a policy uh, the perspective of policy objectives so it, it would really require time to uh, implement it in a meaningful and successful way and so um so I think getting that component of it right is very important.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it's just a tremendous challenge in many regards, uh, both from the regulatory side and the, the compliance implementation side. Um, so I think you know, th- there's uh, any, anything is possible, but there's certainly there's certainly uh, uh, hurdles to overcome. So I would definitely appreciate your perspective, you know, uh, from from uh, sitting where you are within a, a blockchain uh, analytics and and uh, data firm, um, you know how are your, how is Elliptic responding to this? Um, what are you seeing as you know potential ways to deal with this uh, new proposed rule changes for unhosted wallets?
1: Yeah, so I think like a lot of others in the industry, we had a, a number of concerns about the proposal when it was originally published in in uh, like. December and um, we shared some of those concerns and observations in an open letter to FinCEN that we wrote on December thirty first, and you know in that, firstly we noted we we were really concerned about the the initial implementation timeline that was set forth. So the original notice of Propo- Rule, proposed rulemaking or NPRM had a fifteen day comment period, which was. I think completely impractical under any circumstances, but especially for a set of measures that could have a major impact on the way that businesses and users operate. So we recommended in that letter that the comment period uh, be extended to 90 days so that a true assessment of its proposed impact could occur. And we're very encouraged and and delighted by the fact that FinCEN heard that request and FinCEN has now extended the comment period until March 29th, so that a proper consultation and discussion between the industry and and FinCEN can take place to really look Examine some of these technical issues. Um, second, you know we had a number of substantive concerns about the specific proposals that we felt needed to be addressed, so that regulation isn't adopted that has the adverse impact of actually making financial crime more rather than less likely. Um, you know, for example, the, the counterparty identification requirement um, for transactions over three thousand dollars that I mentioned is one. You know, at Elliptic, we feel is is. Particularly um, potentially impractical to implement, it can be very s- easily circumvented, um, in a way that might not do anything to reduce financial crime, and it also presents some some very challenging issues for user privacy, given that it would require regulated businesses to collect a lot of information about people who aren't their own customers or signed up to their own terms of service. So, really, you know. That would create a lot of challenges and and we don't want to see that kind of thing rushed and done too hastily and you know I, i think it's especially important because if forced to do those types of things in a hasty fashion it could result in regulated businesses shifting resources away from compliance operations that are already working for them you know as we already discussed i think illicit activity is a small proportion of overall crypto activity. And you know, the industry already has a lot of success in disrupting it using certain techniques like blockchain analytics. So you know, we don't want to see that jeopardized through the introduction of measures that may not be readily implementable, or, or certainly to have those um, measures introduced on a time scale that um, the industry doesn't have a chance to prepare. So you know, as, as a compliance solutions provider, at Elliptic, we're obviously taking a really close look at these new requirements, um, thinking through ways to address them both using existing solutions but potentially newer innovations uh, we definitely feel that the blockchain analytics has a role to play in enabling compliance with with these proposed measures and so you know that's something we'll be be working through i think you know in the coming months and as we uh, see how the the proposal takes shape um, but at the moment you know we're really focused on working with regulators and our partners in the private sector to ensure that any final regulation that comes out is is sound and really well considered
0: Thank you for that. Yeah. And I think it, you know, I think it speaks to uh, the, you know, the collaborative relationship. Um, and the level of of listening on both sides, I think um, that we see with the the regulatory community. I, you know, from my perspective in the U.S., but probably in other jurisdictions as well. You know, between the regulatory community and the the the, the crypto you know space in as writ broadly. Um, so that's been really encouraging to see, actually. And even though this is you know potentially a major, as you know, technical challenge um, and regulatory challenge, given that it's not necessarily like a, a clear fit between some of the regulations that maybe exist in the traditional financial space and the crypto space um, there's still this you know willingness to, to listen um, and willingness to learn on both sides um, so that's been very encouraging to see and, and uh, you know uh, science, reasons to be optimistic going into uh, to 2021. Uh, So David, thank you so much for the conversation. Uh, Really appreciate the perspective on this rapidly evolving space. Uh, And do definitely want to note for those interested in hearing more about this that we are exploring a we- uh, these topics on our webinar uh, crypto assets top five emerging trends and prediction for 2021 uh, privacy wallets are one of those and uh, we're going to be having much more uh, to come in that presentation so uh, please join us there on uh, on that topic if uh, if you have not already registered so David thanks again for being here and uh, look forward to uh, continuing the conversation in the future
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate you having me.